All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. This is in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey uh, uh, LLC. We are here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. How you doing? Doing just fine. So we've got a very special guest with us here today. We're very grateful that he's joined us on the show. So today we have special guest, David Ling. So David began his junior career as a 14-year-old in the IJHL and continued playing juniors throughout the OHL. He was drafted in 93 during the seventh round of the NHL draft by the Quebec Nordiques. Later on, he went to claiming uh, the OHL scoring title, MVP award, and the CHL's Player of the Year award during his final year in juniors. After graduating in 95, he began his professional journey starting in the AHL, suiting up for the St. John Flames for the 95 and 96 season. Following his first pro year, would end up blossoming into a 20 plus year hockey career suiting up for NHL teams such as the Montreal Canadiens and the Columbus Blue Jackets, as well as playing all over around the world in a total of 14 different leagues until finally retiring from the game in 2018. He's a hockey Ironman, as tough as they come, and obviously a true leader on the ice. So without further ado, please welcome our special guest, David Ling. Sorry that was a mouthful, David. How are you? It's like my elite prospect page. No, I get it. Thanks for yeah, having me, and I, I, I enjoy talking hockey. Awesome, man. Well, go ahead. Then we'll start it off. So I'm excited, David, because uh, you grew up in PEI, Prince Edward Island. And I actually, my grandfather's from PEI and my whole uh, McLeod clan uh, is from PEI. So not a lot of players uh, came from PEI. And uh, when you were beginning playing, I don't even think there were any major junior teams at that time. So when did you start taking hockey seriously? Well, you know, it, it, I'm, in, I'm in Canada and uh, in the Maritimes, we call it, and uh, there's not much else, else to do but hockey. And there's, uh, you know, you grow up uh, either a Leafs fan or a Montreal Canadiens fan. And, and you, like you said, there was no major junior, so it was all TV and, and, and word of mouth of, of the hockey. But my, I have an older brother who, who ended up playing hockey at Notre Dame University, but so he was two years older. So I got into it probably a little early because I did have a brother who, who was older and, and into hockey, but you know, three or four, I started to get on the, on the skates and, and, and playing, but it, you know, got real serious when you, you know, you peewee into, into the peewee and you start, start playing teams from Ontario and stuff and you've been able to compete. Awesome. So you were drafted, like I said, in the seventh round. Um, I'm always curious, what, what is your draft story? How did you find out that you were drafted? Well, it's, you know, I was, I was from the Maritimes. I was playing that back in the, in the nineties where I'm five, nine. So this, my size was a little bit uh, against me and I had to go, go play junior and, and fight my way into getting drafted and try to prove that I'm, I'm only five, nine on the score sheet and not on the, in, in during the game. So I, I did go, uh, I did go to the draft. It was in Quebec city. I did take my dad and my grandfather and, and we went to the draft and, and, and I waited till the, to the seventh round and got drafted. So it was, you know, I, we made a we made a decision knowing that there's a chance that we were driving to Quebec City to uh, to see me not get drafted, but we took that risk and and it ended up uh, it ended up panning out because it was an experience that one you'll never forget. Two, it's it's you know besides playing your first game and scoring your first goal, it's it's right up there as as your top moment in in, in hockey. So when it got to the seventh round, were you kind of thinking? Okay, maybe I didn't get drafted. Or I mean, were you still hopeful the whole time? I always been. Uh, I don't know if it's overconfident. I always thought it, that I've always thought that I could play. I always thought that I wasn't too small. I always thought that that I wasn't in in a situation that that. Uh, so I I did think I still thought I was going to get drafted. So it, I never had one of those. My dad probably did. Probably had that moment where I he thought that I wasn't going to get drafted, but. I, in my mind, I, I still remember not thinking at that. I'm sure I would have been really disappointed if I didn't and, and embarrassed maybe going back to, to show my face on the island, but, you know, it worked out. Absolutely. So in 1995, you lit up the OHL. I mean, you were the first team all-star. You earned the Tilson, uh, the Jim Mahan trophy, CHL player of the year. You had 61 goals, 74 assists. 135 points. I mean, that's the stat, but what I'm interested in at that point in time, when you're lighting it up, who are some of the mentors that were help teaching you how to be a player, both on and off the ice? Well, my coach at that time, I did have, a, I did my, my, 
from my second to my third year junior, my, my coaches changed. And I did have a, I did have a coach my first two years that I did respect and, and looked up to and Dave Allison, who went on to coach in the NHL. But my third year, I, I had a guy who I'm actually still friends with Gary Agnew, who, uh, who came in and, and, and put a lot on my shoulders and put a lot, uh, you know, trusted me and, and showed me, uh, not only what the game was, but I was, you know, I was 18, 19 years old and, and, and taught me how to become from a boy to a man. So, you know, it, that was one at that time, that was the, the thing that made that jump. But there's, you know, my dad was and my mom were influential in, in, in my career. They were, you know, they supported me. I had Forby Kennedy who played with the, the Flyers back in the 60s, who coached me in junior, who who was a very big influential in the, the tough side of the game and taught me how to how to play and I remember him saying, coming up and asking me, do you want to play away? And I and away meaning, do you want to go play junior up, up country? And, and I said, yeah, I want to go play. He goes, well, you're going to have to learn how to fight. So it started at a young age and, 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 you know, I got a mentor from that, but, uh, and then there was, there was a, there was a guy playing in the NHL at the time. And I, I wore 17, I, I wear 17, my kids wear 17. And it's because Gerard Land, who's from Somerside PEI, and he was, you know, really the only NHL at, 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 from PEI when I was growing up and and that's where where I got my number and, and my kids got their number. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about, you know, I mean you definitely had the enforcer role throughout your career, but with you know stats here at 95, 96, I mean you, I don't think you had time to be an enforcer. I don't know what your penalty minutes were, but 135 points. I mean you're that's that's like two points a game or something, isn't it? It's funny because it's funny because that all my buddies tease me and my teammates I ended up having 136 PIMs, so I've never had more points than PIMs. So I, I almost did that year, but but didn't. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, that was a lot of penalty minutes that season still, even with all those points. So um, uh, going back, so David, you have played for many leagues uh, across the world, and I'm specifically now talking about the ones overseas. So I'm just curious, what was the best league to play for, and which one paid the best? Well, they the, the best hockey, no question, outside the NHL, I think, and I still believe it even better than the American League is, is the KHL and the, the skill level and the players that they get over there. And and the reason they do get the players over there and, the, and that the Russians stay over there is because it is the best paying league outside the, the NHL. So I think it, both questions answered are, are the KHL. The other the other leagues that I played in, Finland was more North American up and down. S Switzerland was really skilled hockey, but was a bigger ice surface and 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 was more puck possession. All all the countries I played in had a different style, but the KHL had, I think, from bottom to top, the top talent outside the NHL. So I usually ask this question in general, but obviously it's such a hot topic now, especially I'm sure we've all seen uh, Will Tom Wilson trending on Twitter for the shenanigans last night. So. Do you agree that this is a prime example from that situation, if you're familiar with it, of why fighting slash tough guys should stay in the NHL? Or do you think it's the opposite? Do you still think that maybe fighting shouldn't be in the NHL anymore? What are your opinions on that for today's hockey? You know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think the stage fighting should be in, in the game anymore. I do think that you should be able to have a tough guy. I know that it, it allows for, for your skilled players to, to play play harder and I do think that you know that sometimes the players do have to to dictate what what rules are set on the ice and, and let sometimes the ref and uh, I see your shirt and I know and like do you go do, it's and every time I look at it I, I look at Brad Marchand he crosses the line but would every every team like to have him on 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 their team and it's it's a yes would everyone like Tom Wilson yes if he was on the trading blocks going into the playoffs would 20 teams line up to take them. Yes. So it, it's just, you can't have the fourth line guy that can't play anymore, but I think that the Tom Wilson is a mold that every team is looking for still, and it's hard to find, but do I agree that there should be some kind of fighting? Yes, I do. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was interesting. I didn't watch the game. I watched uh, another game, but yeah, nobody stood up for Pernarin and um, it, it seemed like old school hockey, certainly, you know, uh, Linger and in, in, in my time watching hockey, that would have not have been tolerated. Someone would have just come off the bench, and you're not going to let Tom Wilson get away with that. Do you, I think some teams have that. Washington's first, uh, especially tough. 
but I, I guess the Rangers aren't. I didn't see anybody step up to Wilson. Not that I'd want to personally, but I mean, I think I think the cult. I think that culture is gone out of the game. I think I played up until you know 2018. Even it was it was in the East Coast thing, but it's the same kind of culture. I think that when I first started, if you bumped the goalie, it was a line brawl. Uh, 10 years later, we bumped the goalie, we're fighting. And now 10 years from there, you bump the goalie and you might get a two minute penalty and no one touches you. So it, I think it's a culture thing. And I think that, I think the team toughness isn't there anymore. I don't think that the, the culture where, you know, if I don't stick up for my teammate, I'm going to get in trouble from my teammates or my coach that was in the game in the 1990s, early 2000s. I think that's gone. I think there are guys that will stick up but there's majority of the guys just don't have it in them and just don't have that, you know, they're, they're, I think it's the accountability. I don't think you're allowed to yell at a kid for not sticking up and fighting your, your teammate anymore. I think that they have the, the players have more rights than, than, the, than the coaches nowadays. Same with kids and parents, as you would know, uh, dad. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because we've uh, some of our guests we've had on here, the older vets, you know, like yourself that, you know, they talk about, sort of, uh, well, I, I won't sugarcoat it, you know, coddling of these younger players coming into the NHL of, you know, you used to make a mistake, you were benched, that was it. You shut your mouth and you do your time until the coach sends you out there. But now it seems like, well, Linger, you know, next time when you go out there, try to do this as opposed to that. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's kind of, uh, you know, certainly changed in a game, like, like you said. So, um who was the toughest team you were a part of? And I'm counting, I mean, it could be OHL days, it could be AHL, Europe. What was the toughest team you were a part of? It's, it's, it's not even in question. There was a team I, I played in St. John's Maple Leafs during the lockout. And, uh, you know, we had one, one or two heavyweights and we had seven or eight middleweights. And I explained, and I always, we talk about it all the time because, you know, guys love, love talking about the stories, but I, he, he, I remember sitting on the bench and if there was a guy fighting, you could feel the vibration on the bench because everyone else wanted to be out there and that was, they wanted to be the one fighting. So it was kind of like, why is he getting to do it? Why can't I? So we, there was, a, there was eight or nine animals on our team that just really enjoyed and really liked that part of the game. And, and it, and it carried over, you know, we, we did have a skilled team and it allowed our skilled players to be even more skilled and, and our, when there was issues, there was, it was, it was a fun game to play. And we had, I think we had four or five brawls, you know, it was a lockout year. We had one brawl at, at the Air Canada center. Cause we were playing in the, in the NHL rink. Sometimes we, I think we brawled in, in Ottawa, they had Monty or uh, Emery, the, the guy that died uh, in net and they had uh, Chris Neal McGratton. And there was just, it was that time and that, that, that year, we had a not even close, you know, I've always been on teams where there's three or four guys that like to fight, but this was like literally eight or nine that really, and you could feel the vibration. Like it's my turn. It's my turn. I want it. Why are you doing it? So that, that was the toughest. Wow. That, that must've been like pressure for, for, for the guys that had to get into it. Cause if you, you know, get into a fight, you get your bell rung, you got to go back to the bench. You, you know, if you, if you lost, I mean, that's not good. Did the other guys give you? Yeah, but it was funny because, you know, we were we were so close that if one guy got beat up, there was a lineup. The guy had to fight. The other guy that beat him had to fight. And he, guys, guys had to decide if they wanted to fight once or that they wanted to fight three times. Because if you beat one of our guys, there was another guy coming. And of course, they they know that, right? Yeah, and it, and it sets it. Sets it we we were a team that not many teams wanted to play against and then it, and it and for that reason yeah you might be tougher than one of our guys but we we had a team that stuck together that was and the next guy was coming and if you beat him there was another guy coming so it was it was fun to play on because you could you could really do whatever you wanted yeah <laughs> so then we talked about the toughest team you're part of so who was arguably the toughest player you ever fought doesn't matter what league who was the toughest player you had to You know, there was, there was a, I fought a lot of guys in junior be, before they came, became really, really tough, but the toughest guy I fought in pro, I think, you know, I it might be surprising, but it was Jim Vandermeer with the Flyers. You know, he, I, I, he came across and hit me and 
and I dropped my gloves and he hit me with a punch that that rang my head. I never I never got rang like that. And then he hit me with a couple more. And, it, you know, I didn't get really pounded, but it was like, whew, I don't know if I could fight that a guy that guy again and, and do do any much better because the punch hit me. And it was it was the first time during a fight that really got hurt where I felt like, I, you know, my bell was wrong. So I want to leave the fighting. Andrew loves talking about the, the <laughs> fighting. So your first NHL game, you you get the call up from Montreal. It's in Montreal's first Boston Bruins. Wow. I mean, okay. I mean, you can't wish for a better, you first know, game. a better game except being on a Bruins. But anyway, um, what was that like? But I, I want to ask this question. Some of our other guests that uh, have made it to the NHL, they always talk about their first game the locker room culture, especially with a captain, uh, that you're never treated uh, any differently than any other player. If it's you, you play one game in the NHL or a thousand, you kind of made it there and you're one of the team. Was that sort of your experience and what was it like for you to play in that first game and leading up to the first game? Well, it's funny because I, you know, you, you dream of playing your first game, you dream of playing on TV in your first game, but you know, the stage that I got to play in was, you know, Montreal Canadiens against the Boston Bruins Saturday night, hockey night in Canada, you know, Ray Bork. And it's just, it's, it's, it's made me, I, I, I haven't been nervous in too many situations in the game. And it, and I was really nervous. I remember coming in the, the night before, there was no cell phones, but Shane Corson called my called my room and said, we're going out for dinner. So, you know, it, and that was part of the way that that they did it. They welcomed me into the team, no matter if you played, like you said, one game or or 500 games. And then you get into the room and when you get there, you know, I'm sure they look at you like, what the what, who's this guy? But when you get there, you're 20 guys trying to win a game. It's not it's not one guy looking at others and, and, and on good teams. It's 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 a team that and we're all part of it trying to trying to win a game back then the guys that got called up usually didn't play too much like they do now they we you know you got four or five minutes but I remember going into uh into the game a few shifts and I I run Ray Bork behind the net I hit him I fall down but they they took the picture before the before I fell and it was in the Montreal Gazette the next morning so I have a picture of me hitting Bork and it looks like I'm getting the better room but if you if you were able to play the picture, I fell down after, and he probably went down and, and got a scoring chance. So it's just funny, but it was a it's a keepsake sake that I ended up getting getting, and I have on my wall now is me me hitting Ray Bork. That's oh, pretty that. awesome. I remember seeing that earlier today, so that's a pretty funny story. <laughs> so you're old enough that you played in the old IHL. You played for Indy, Utah, and of course Kansas City. So young people don't understand uh, the unique situation that was that rebel outlaw IHL. So my question is, what was it like to play in the IHL? You know, it was, it was when you, even when you say it now, people, the kids and, and the, the 30 year olds don't understand what, what, it, what it was. And it was a, it was a league that was like you said, an outlaw league. And it was, I was, in a situation in Chicago that I wasn't getting what I thought I, I thought I could get. And I, instead of not being able to go anywhere, you were able to go to the eye and, and negotiate a contract with an independent team and, and play there. And you go there and there's, there's some teams that were affiliated with NHL clubs and there were some that were totally independent. You had young prospects and you had older guys that were leaving the game out of their career. And, and like, on, on the team in Indy, we had Glenn Featherstone, and then in in Kansas City, we had Michael Bavanka and and guys like that. So it was and it was a it was really highly skilled. But I remember going in my first shift, and and they did. I was you know I was dirty with my stick. I liked to fight, and and I I remember going in the corner, and, and a guy coming behind me, and he's going, "I'm on your left shoulder. I'm on your left shoulder." So it was kind of a more of a gentleman's game where the there was older players that didn't really want to engage in too much on their way out, but the skill level was really high and the money and, and the money was a lot better than the American Like It wasn't as good as the NHL in, in any, in any mind, but it was better than the AHL. So you were able to, to, to leverage the AHL and, and go to that league. And, you know, if I probably had to do it over, I might not have done it and stuck and, 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 and battled it out with my NHL club and seen what, what did, but you know, you're that cocky, 20 something year old that thinks that they're better than they are. And there's better options out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, 
So even though uh, we, we tend to be more of a Bruins Bay show at times, uh, we actually live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So can you give our, our Tulsa fans here a, a good Kansas City Midwest hockey story? Yeah, you know, I played two years in Kansas City and we played right down in, 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 in Kansas City. But I remember going there and it, this isn't really a Missouri. It's more of a more of a U.S. story where, you know, you would I got there and they were announcing when there was an icing and they were announcing when it was offside. This was and they, and they were teach they were teaching the Americans how the game really, really was played. And and they were the fans were cheering and stuff, but they weren't as educated as they are now. And they're not in it because they didn't have hockey. So I find us Canadian boys were, would giggle and laugh that they're, you know, that was icy and the puck was pushed down the ice from the other side of red line. <laughs> but was yeah. it, was it, and it was the same way when you played for the Oklahoma city Barons too, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, that's a funny story. I didn't, I didn't end up going to Oklahoma. I played in, they, they had, I played with the coach back in Fredericton, uh, Jerry Fleming, and he, uh, they had a couple problems with visas and didn't have enough players coming over the border to play against the Marlies. So he called me, I was playing in Brampton, the Canadian team. He knew I had my green card and could do both and called me up and I got to play with Oklahoma, but I was in, it was in the, on a road trip. So I never really got to Oklahoma where they, where they played. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. So bouncing back and forth between the American leagues, whether it's the NHL, AHL, ECHL, and then the European leagues, out of, you know, hopping back and forth, was it really difficult to adjust to the other style of um, play over in the other leagues and then coming back to the American hockey? So are you mean in Europe or you mean like? Yes, yeah, Europe. I some, some I, I don't know, it's because I'm a slow and, and my game, my game and my, the, 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 the parts of my game that are, are, are above average are my thinking the game and, and I'm not a very good skater, but I think the game and I have, I play the game and I, because I did that, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't, I, I didn't need to adapt to a lot of the games where a lot of players go over to Switzerland, they can't play in Switzerland, they get moved to Russia and they have a good year in Russia because the style of play fit them better. I think because I was slow and, and I was, I was uh, smart that I was able to adapt to, to a lot of legs. But the biggest change that I had is when I went up to the NHL and back to the American League, that jump back and forth, I went up to the NHL as a fighter and I'd come back and be on the power play and, and, and looking to, to score. So it was, if I was up too long in the NHL, I would, I'd be up there and you would come down and you would kind of not have your confidence the first period, first two periods of the American League game, but you're, you're looked upon to be the, the point guy, the power play guy and, and whatnot. And then you get called back up and you're the fourth line fighter. Let's go. So that's where I had the biggest change in my game and the biggest time to adapt. And the, you know, it, you had to really focus mentally to, to be able to change that Europe coming back and forth. I, I didn't feel that a lot of players do because the styles don't fit their style. Wow. Interesting. So it, yeah. What, how, did, how was your role defined if, like you said, I mean, you were really doing uh, well in the AHL. You get called up to the NHL. Did the coach or somebody say, hey, look, we're looking for a fourth line checker? Or was, did you just know that's they were looking for you to be more of a tough guy, checker guy? Or how back in the back in the back in the 90s, early 2000s, when you got called up, you're on the fourth line. So when the NHL team called, there could be the best player in the American league team could be the best player playing for the American league team, but both the NHL and the AHL team realized that they couldn't play fourth line on any team in the world, let alone the NHL team. So there was, there was a certain amount of guys that couldn't get called up at that time because they would have had to play in the top two lines. They did know that I threw the body around, you know, like to like to fight. So it was an opportunity that I was able to do. And then to stay there, I knew that I had to do it. So it was, it was kind of like you knew your role. You had to do it. If that's what you wanted to do, you had to, you had to do it. Where now, if you're a first line player in the American league, a winger goes down first line or second line in the NHL club, you might go up and play, take that position where back in the nineties, that didn't happen. You were playing fourth line and, and someone from the fourth line or third line that was there all year was going up, taking that spot. So that it didn't work that way. It does now. And guys get a lot more opportunity. So after three seasons with Columbus in the NHL, you go over to Russia. And I got to say, you've got 
brass balls to go over there, especially during that time. <laughs> what was it like living in Russia? I mean, we got a bunch of questions about Russian hockey, but Russia. No, it's it 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 was it it was crazy. You know, I wouldn't. Uh, I went over there and, you know, I'm not a video game guy, so I couldn't stay in my room. I had to go out and, and, and see what the, the country was all about, but it's so, and it, and it's a dangerous place. There's alcoholism, there's drugs, there's street people. It's dangerous. People drive drunk and everything, everything that was stressful. Like you would finally get home to be your bed at eight o'clock at night and you'd be like drained just because everything's walking down the streets stressful because you, you're watching out in case there's a car coming down the sidewalk, which I seen before too. But the first year I went over there was the Super League. It wasn't even the KHL yet, and they were paying you American hundred dollar bills in paper bags, and that's how you got your paycheck. So you were leaving the rink with this bag full of money, not even knowing where to take it. So it was it was there was some it really difficult stuff there, and and. You know, there were situations that because you were making more money than you could in the American League or back in North America, you, you always sat at home going, should I, should I leave? Should I stay? Is the money that good? Is it good enough? Should I stay? What should I do? And the, you're always wondering what time. And I remember one time I said my apartment got broken into and they wouldn't move, move my apartment. So until they took me serious, I packed all my bags up and took my close to practice and said, if you don't move me, I'm leaving. So I ended up getting a new place that day, but that's how people had, you had to work the people because they just, they, they didn't care about you. They just wanted you to play what, whatnot. It was, it was, it was tough. I played their parts of four years and it was, it was tough. So, I mean, you shit in your pants, you got all this money in cash and you got to leave the, uh, the arena. What, what, what do you do with it? Well, I was smart enough. I got, I got the, I got the general manager to put in a safe at the rink, but, but, like we had to, me and another guy had to hire gunmen in a cab to get our money to the bank because it wasn't, there's not, it's not like, it's not through the electrical system. You're carrying lots of money in a cab and then you had, we had to, we couldn't, then we said we couldn't just hire any car or any cab and any gunman because they could, they could have it set up where they're going to steal our money. So we had to gain some trust with some expats in the area that we, we ended up becoming friends with that were from Canada and they helped us get these people that would help us get this to the, to the, to the bank. And it happened once a month. We had to get there every month with this bag, flat paper bag full of cash. I'm surprised you didn't have like some Russian mafia group being like, Hey, we'll, we'll help it to the bank, but we need 10%. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that that would happen. I, I remember one time coming across the, I was flying home and I, I, had, I heard that you're allowed to take 10,000, cash on the plane. So I get to the lineup and there's no English. So it's all in Russian and I see $3,000. So I'm like, Oh my God, what do I do? So I hid, I hid 7,000 and they caught it. The guy caught it up from me. So he's got the $10,000 and I call my agent and he says, he's going to, he's going to bribe you. So I'm sitting there and he's the cameras above the cameras above the, above the guy. And he's tapping the, he's tapping the pot of money and he's go and I'm, and then he lifts up the corner of the mat that he's got underneath him. So I, he lifts up the corner of the mat and taps the money. So I take one of them off, one of the hundreds off and put them under the, the mat so the camera can't see it. And he taps the mat again. And I take another hundred, put it under the thing. And he taps it again. So I put three hundred, three $100 bills under this mat. He gives me the money back and on I go. So I was, and then I realized that I was allowed to 10, but the three had to, anything over three you had I had to tell them but if I would have told them I would but I didn't know the language so I didn't know and so that was and that happened all the time those situations happened all the time Freddie Brathway used to do certain you know hide his money in his pants so he could, could practice because they paid him before practice and he didn't want to leave it in the rink so he would put it in his pants and practice with money in his pants so crazy stuff like that always that is it crazy. Sounds like something out of a bad movie where David Ling ends up in uh, some Siberian gulag somewhere and everybody's <laughs> yeah. going, what happened to him? <laughs> yeah. And, so, and that what, could happen. So what was the difference then between that uh, Russian Federation League that you played for and then the, uh, or the Super League and then the KHL? What was the difference between those two leagues? Well, it became more professional. I think the KHL got new leadership and they knew realized that all these horror stories were going to start discouraging people from, from coming over and it. And then, you know, 
they started to use banks like the rest of the world to get your paycheck into the into the bank and, and whatnot. And I think it just became more professional. I think they it took them a little while to evolve, but it, it evolved into a league that now is at least respectable. I don't know if the, the country is any more respectable, but the league is at least more respectable and not as, you know, you, you could have woke up when I first went over there, you could have woke up and the, your money and your team could have been gone and you, they owed you a whole bunch of money. And then there's tons of stories I could go on all day about Russia. I should write a book, but. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. Jeez. <laughs> go ahead and get the next one. So uh, a lot of young players we're seeing tend to put themselves in vulnerable positions on the ice and they end up getting hurt like McAvoy with the Bruins. Great player, but he tends to from the fans perspective, put himself in a vulnerable position. You're an iron man. I mean, you hardly missed a game and you mentioned Brad Marchand. And I think Marchand is a good example of a, of a player that was around your size that seems to protect himself on the ice and not put himself in those vulnerable positions. So how did you um, kind of prepare yourself and craft your game that you weren't getting hurt? Cause you played a lot of games. Well, I think I think one of the, the the similarities is we're both short, so I think our limbs aren't as long and dangly out. And in, in tr- when you get into traffic, your link your limbs aren't dangling out where you, you can get hit. But I think that my style my style of game was you know I was I'm, I'm a heady I was a heady player. I always had my head up. I didn't put myself in position to to get hit. I knew what where the vulnerable places on the ice were in front of the net coming across the middle and. I learned at a young age that when you get rid of the puck, you put your elbow and your stick in the air. And if someone's coming to hit you and you don't see them, they're going to run into your elbow and stick or, or both. And they're not going to want to do it again. And then you get a reputation where if you're going to hit me, you're going to either get an elbow in the face or you're going to get a stick after you hit me and, and you're going to decide if you want to do it again. But I think that the combination of all that kind of allowed me one, not to get hit much. I, you know, I, I, I remember five times where I got hammered and I remember all five of them. And, and I know the guy that hit me and, and because I didn't get hit that much, I got, you know, you get rubbed out or because people don't like confrontation. People don't like consequences. And when you do have the reputation that if you do this and you, you're going to get something back that they decide if they want to do it or, you know, and then they tell their buddies and then around the leg and, and you kind of get your space that way. And I think that helped that helped plus knowing what places on the ice not to go with your head down and watching the game now. Cause I love watching the game. The game's totally different, way more skilled. The players are so much better, so much faster, but they're allowed to go and toe drag into the front of the net. And they're allowed to go through the ice to center ice without getting hit where we weren't, we were allowed to, but you were getting hit and you were getting hurt because you, you, you know, you got a cross check in front of the net or you got an open ice hit that, you know, you were, you were feeling for a couple of weeks in going through the neutral zone. So, but, but they're allowed to do that because that's not in the game anymore. Right. So what led to you uh, to joining Brampton in the ECHL in 2014? It's funny. I kind of didn't know what I was going to do. I went, I, I moved back to PEI and I was working in, in, in the government just for four or five months on a, on a, on a, on a, on a favor. And I was just to figure things out. And it came to December and I'm like, I hate this, like this, this, I don't like this. I want to play hockey. So a buddy of mine was playing in Brampton and I linked in the coach said, do you need any players? He said, can you come Tuesday? I said, I can be there Monday. So that that's the first year. And then I played with the, the next coach that came, I played with him and, you know, I, sometimes I would start off playing senior and, and, and they would call me in January and say, do you want to come play? We have injuries. Cause when you're down in these coast league, when you do have injuries, there's no, there's the AHL has these coast league, the NHL has the AHL to grab players, but these coast league really doesn't have any, any feeding system to get them when they're hurt. So three years in a row, they called me and said, will you come play? And I'm, I, if they called me now to come play, I wouldn't say no. So I can't say no. I love playing. So they call. I said, sure. And then it, and it, and it worked out. And I, you know, the, the last year I could play and I really noticed the speed of the game catch up. I could play f- the power play. I could get by playing five on five, but you know, I, there was, it, it, the game was starting to pass me by the speed of it. Five on five. Did when, when you signed with them, 
Did they discuss any specific role with, with you? Were they looking for you to put the puck in the net, provide leadership? I mean, you're probably the same age or maybe even older than the coach by this time. I, you know what? It's funny because I played with the, he, I was a 20 year old in junior. He was a 16 year old. So wow. on the same team. So I was older, you know, I, I came in and I, instead of them giving me a role, I took the role as whatever you need. And his name was Colin Chalk. And I said, Chalk, you know what? I said, I'm not going to question in front of the guys. I'm not going to, you're the coach. And the guys knew that I respected him as a coach and, 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 and I did, it wasn't an act. I, I, I know the coach player role. I've watched it all my life and the, what the coach says, whether you like it or not, you do it to the, to the best with the way you can. So I, it worked that way. And, and, and he did give me the opportunity to play in an offensive role, which that's what benefits me because when I'm not playing, if I'm just playing five on five, I'm not, a, I'm not that good of a player at that age. And, you know, we, we're season ticket holders here to Tulsa Oilers of the CHL. And um, I, I was surprised of when we moved here nine years ago, whatever it was, you know, I, I grew up Boston watching the NHL. Uh, we did a little bit of Oklahoma City Barons before they folded. And I never really, you know, saw much of the East Coast League, which isn't really East Coast. You know. But the game's fast. These guys are big. I mean, this is not what I would consider, you know, old double A minor league hockey from, you know, if I was 25 years old, it's really a fast game. And, uh, um, you know, what was your experiences working with these young guys? I mean, they're not kids. I mean, they're pros and some of them are big, big, huge guys, power forwards. What was your experience and, and working it, with them and mentoring them? I'm sure you were the mentor. It was like, you're the dad on the team. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was fun because I, I think I'm 22. I don't, I act 22, but I'm not. So, it, but what happened early in, when I went up, I got into a couple situations where, you know, I would stick a guy or I would slash a guy or punch a guy. And it became pretty aware that no one in the East Coast, like not too many guys anymore want complications. So when I would swing my stick or put my elbows up and or chirp a guy, every everyone on the ice, including my team, thought, "Oh my God, what do we have here? Is this a caveman coming from from somewhere else?" And it was kind of like my own team was scared me, but I got a lot of ice and a lot of respect that way. And you know, I didn't have to. It wasn't a lot of teaching. I got I I answered a lot of questions from young guys that were still thinking that the American League and the NHL was, was, was their dream and, and they thought they could still get there. Some guys don't. And I got a lot of questions of what ifs and what if I do this and how can I do that? And, and I still in contact with a lot of the players on stuff that if they have questions. So I think, yeah, I, I mentored that way, but I don't think that I couldn't show them how to stick in or how to shoot. They're all so fast, so skilled nowadays it's it's crazy like my kid can pick up the puck on the stick and I, he goes dad can you do that i'm like no like and he and he and he's 16 so it's it, it's just a crazy the amount of talent that not only kids a younger age but these young pros coming in like you look at the nhl now a lot of the a lot of the top players are between 18 and 23 and and they're and the 10 years ago you didn't see that you know they were good players but the, the still the top players were 28 29 but now it's these 18 year olds are coming in and they're, they're making a really big impact and being superstar players at 18. And, and then at 24, 25, they're, you feel like they're really old, but they're not, they're really only 25. So it's the game's really changing. These young kids are coming up with so much skill. And so we talk about you being the iron man of hockey and playing for so long and, and hardly missing a game. So you had did an interview four years ago with vice and in, in one of the sections you had mentioned uh, I guess your warm-up routine before games. And you had mentioned that you had coffee and did maybe a five light minute warm-up, no stretching. And then you went out there and played. Is that true? And did you do that every time? Was that your pregame ritual? Yeah. Even sometimes it, they would have a team in Europe, they would have a team stretch. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't like I, to the point where I don't do it. Like I, I don't, I, I like having a coffee. I like relaxing. I would, Guys would be doing, I'd be still in my suit or my, 
and not even change to do that. I'd be drinking coffee, making jokes, watching TV on my phone that they thought was crazy. So it, it was just a different way. And it was something that I've always done, just drink coffee, maybe tape my stick and do a few jumping jacks and have a hot shower and get my gear on. And everyone, I'd walk in with five minutes left to get my gear on and be on that. So it was, that's, and that's always the way I did it. My back and my back and groins are having getting arthritis and I feel them now and I probably should rewound my career and, and started stretching and, and warming up better. But at that time I, I didn't know. That's funny. So uh, before we close and we, we close with this quick lightning round questions of, uh, well, you'll see in a minute, but before we do that, um, some people uh, uh, send us some Twitter messages and they want to know what are you doing now? And of course, uh, we know we've done our homework, but you you got your MBA in finance while you were, uh, I guess, uh, playing over in England and you're in the finance business. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah I'm back in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and I'm, I'm, I'm licensed in, Ham in Ontario and Prince Edward Island. So I'm back and forth between both. And I'm working with IG Wealth Management, which is uh, one of the big financial firms in Canada. And we deal with, you know, investments are, are part of our, our financial plan. It's a holistic plan that we take you from today into retirement and, 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 and into death and, and pass the estate on. So it's not just what return can you get me? It's, we sit you down, we talk about your goals and objectives and, 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 and really dig into what you're, what, what, keeps you up at night, put a plan together so you understand and you're taken care of right till right till to death and, and beyond. So it's it's I really I didn't know if I would like it. I knew I was gonna like the the financial part of it, but I didn't know if I'd really like dealing with you know the the stress of the stock market, the stress of this stuff. But when you really bring in a family or you bring in individuals and and you you help them and pave the way into retirement. And they thank you and, and they're smiling. It really is something that is I'm passionate about because I know that we're helping direct people in the right way. So I, I, I'm really, it's been three years and I, I, I haven't regretted one bit that, that I'm in this, with this company, IG Wealth Manager, which is, which is really great to, to be a part of. Is it true from your perspective uh, that, I mean, we hear horror stories from hockey players and making lots of money. Uh, I'll use the old Bobby Orr with his agent Eagleson that totally screwed him out of money and other NHL players that they just didn't know anything. You know, they're, they're from the farm out in Saskatchewan and all of a sudden they got all this money. They blow the money. They're expecting their agent or whoever to help them. And all of a sudden they don't have any money. Was that kind of uh, uh, your experience with some of these players? Yeah, you know, and it's, you, you know, you try to reach out and you try to help. And and the biggest thing that I, I tell them is you have to even, you know, if your parents aren't financially illiterate and don't know how to help with your money, you have to surround yourself with people that you know, you trust, and, and they're going to direct you in the right way. Because there's, you know, we only hear the horror stories of the hockey players, but there's, you know, your three neighbors down the road that have gone through the same situation that no one hears about him it's just the the dumb hockey player that gets taken care of which sometimes they do but everyone gets taken taken advantage of and given advice that they sh they they shouldn't take so i think that it that the advice that i give is i don't care if it's me or whoever but you have to trust and know and understand that they are there to help you not to help them yeah there's you know the amount of money or or there's you pay them through that way, but you have to trust them that they're paving your future in the, in the right way. And if, if you don't surround yourself with people, hockey players, athletes are just more vulnerable because of the amount of money they make it at the age they're making it. Yeah. We're going to end with a lightning round question. So we're going to ask a quick question. You don't have to answer it fast. If you've got a story, that's fine. Or if you just want to give us a one word or two word answer, that's totally fine. So here we go. We're going to put you on the spot. Who is your favorite line mate? My favorite line mate, Kyle Wellwood, St. John's Maple Leafs. We talked about earlier the toughest guy you fought, but what was the toughest player you played against? Just did not give you any room on the ice. Just a good player you didn't like seeing on the ice. Uh, 
I mentioned him before, uh, McGratton. <laughs> Toughest goalie to play against? Ray Emery. Because if you score it out of, you might have to fight him. <laughs> yeah. Rest in peace. Rest of, in peace, Ray. Yes, yes. Out of every arena that you've ever played in, what was your favorite arena that you played? Uh, Chicago Stadium with the with the loud crowd. I you know I always heard about it, but you know you, with that that crowd is is that's the first one that I think of. There's 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 some of the you know I I played in you know there's some of the original six brinks that teams that you play in that you you, you love to play in. But the one that when you ask that, the first thing that comes to mind is the the crowd cheering during the anthem at the Chicago Stadium. Who was the guy that got under your skin the most? Got under my skin the most. Guy by the name of Eric Landry, who was in the Montreal system. He was a little smaller guy, rat that wouldn't fight. <laughs> well, there's another guy that used, I think he might have coached Tulsa. Now I'm going to, it might I don't know if he's still coach or he was, uh, Rob Murray. Yeah. Yeah. He, ended yeah. up coaching me. he coached me in Providence, but when I first started, we had some battles in, uh, in the American hockey league and he was, I was dirty and he might be dirtier. You know, you're not the first guy to, yeah. to tell us that where, you know, we talk about when I talk to Murray now, just occasionally when I catch him after a game, you know, he's like, I don't want any fighting. It's all about winning. It's about making the team better. And I'm like, dude, I remember you playing in Springfield. I remember you playing in Washington and you were like AHL's greatest, dirtiest, toughest player there was. And he just laughs and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's totally different as a coach. He's, he doesn't want any. I, I experienced it. Everything you said is true. <laughs> Craziest slash funniest or embarrassing thing that happened to you during a game. I went, I got traded from Montreal's farm team, no, Calgary's farm team to Montreal's farm team. We went back into St. John to play. And I went in, I went into the wrong penalty box. <laughs> Did you get, I was used to going, I was used to going in, I was used to going into it and I went in the wrong one. <laughs> so did all the players be like, did they, they let it slide or, or, or did yeah. they chair back? Well, I got abused, but you could you could hear the laughter in the crowd, and they started to cheer, and then they, you know, almost a stand ovation when I had to get out of the penalty box and go to the other one. <laughs> so um, I'm going to say this: the craziest thing that I've seen is uh, this guy here, Linger, uh, uh, water skiing behind a zamboni. Oh, yeah. I saw that video. I think that's pretty crazy, Dave. And you went viral with that, right? Yeah, that 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 went viral, and it, that was that was. We were up. I think we were up six to one, second period, going into the third period. The Zam or the the ref came out of the the, out of the penalty box where the dressing room was for the refs, slammed the penalty box door and the glass broke. So the Zamboni had to come out, and I used to do it in practice. And don't I don't have a clue why I why I did it yet, but the Zamboni comes out. I look, tap the guy beside me, I go watch this. Out the door I went and. For the, the rest is on video to see. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, let's see. The arena with the worst ice conditions that you played in. The worst ice conditions. There was we used to play in UNLV's rink in Las Vegas in the old eye. It was uh I think they forgot to paint underneath white and it looked gray and it made noise and the snow built up and it was slow and you could hear the cracking and it's the old UNLV stadium and it was in Vegas. That's the worst one that sticks out. There's other ones that are, are bad at certain times. I remember playing playoff game in Portland, Maine, and, and there was puddles, puddles behind the net where they, you know, literally had to cancel the game one time, but that was just a situation. But the, the one in Vegas was every night it was gray. Cause I think they, they didn't, well, they didn't paint paint underneath. So this is the final one, and I know it's – I mean, I'm sure that there's a bunch, but just the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask this question, favorite memory from your hockey career? 
scored my first NHL goal. Awesome. And where was that? And then where was it? Yeah. It was in Dallas against Ron Tugman. I ended up playing with him and I only got four goals, but I do have a two on one. Looked off the guy who was on a two on one with, took a slap shot, scored top shelf, Patrick Wall. So that's one of the, one, the story that I like, like to tell the most. I got four goals, but one's against Patrick Wall. There you go. There you go. Awesome. Well, Ligger, we can't uh, thank you enough for coming on this podcast. Uh, This has been great. And you're, you're one of the true iron men of, of your generation of hockey and that's saying stuff because there's a lot of tough guys, but I've been looking forward to this interview. Andrew's done his research. He's like, I can't wait to talk to this guy. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, David. Appreciate you. Yeah, for sure. And if you want me on again, I, I, like I said, I love talking hockey. I love, love giving my opinion. Thank you. Luke's going to pause this a moment and then we'll say right goodbye to you. So. All right. There you have it, folks. David Ling. So if you don't remember him playing in the nineties in the NHL, he did have 26 fighting majors. I forgot to mention that earlier. So, um, I mean, you definitely may have seen him. Um, I swear on his elite prospects page, he said he played for the Oklahoma City Barons. So it's just an interesting story. No, he did. I think it was like three games. And like you said, I think it was more of a call-up or an on-loan thing. Gotcha. Um, so he, he never actually played a home game. I think it was like just a road game series. Right. Yeah. And I remember just bringing up the Oklahoma City Barons. Taylor Hall was on that team. Right. We did uh, watch around 2013, 14-ish right. area. Yeah. Uh, and Taylor, yeah, Hall was uh, the star Yep, there. So and that just, was the Edmonton system at the time. Yeah, and he had already been up, called up to Edmonton the year before. So it's just strange that's where he ended up. And then he went back up to the NHL and never returned back to the Well, NHL. if you haven't seen what uh, Linger looks like today, I mean, the guy could still be playing. I mean, he, he retired only a few years ago, but I mean, this guy is in T, you know, top condition. Uh, you know, he, he, I mean, wow. Yeah, absolutely. So we appreciate David coming on the show. We hope that. Everybody enjoyed the show this week. And don't forget to, uh, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give us a five-star rating if you like the show. And, uh, yeah, do you got any closing words for us today? No, I think that's it. I think we'll end with the interview and we'll catch everybody else. Uh, we do have uh, coming up, I think it's Aaron McKenzie is coming up next on our podcast. Yes, that is the next guest. So be prepared for that. And we did make a new Instagram. I did. We're going to be more active on it very soon, but I wanted to go ahead and make it to go ahead and follow us. It's, of course, Lindroth Hockey Podcast. You can find us on there easy. Um, So, yeah, other than that, we appreciate everybody tuning in this week, episode 24. Thank you much.